Welcome, everyone. We got a great guest today, Gary Wayne, and he's an author, and he has a lot to talk about, a very interesting topic today. And welcome, uh, Gary, to the show. Appreciate it so much. And uh, what what basically your subject is on your book is what, what Genesis 6, is that right? It kind of leads into that? Yeah, and thank you for inviting me to your podcast and to be able to talk about my book and I think a whole bunch of topics that your audience is really going to be interested in. So yeah, the book is called The Genesis Six Conspiracy, but it is so more, so much more than just the giants. I mean, there's a lot of books out there about the giants, but there isn't is a book out there that covers all of the related factions to the giants and the organizational structures and how they all tie together, particularly into the royal bloodlines and the secret societies. So it's a story that begins obviously in Genesis 6, 1 through 4 is the preamble to the flood story, which most people don't make a connection to that they're intricately connected. And it talks about the creation of the giants by the sons of God and how this new larger superior type of being takes control over the antediluvian world. It usurps the kingships, it partners with the descendants of Cain who supply the daughters to mate with the gods or the fallen angels, the gods as are recorded in polytheism. And how that organizational structure merges with the mystical religion that is developed by Cain and Enoch that begins not only the mystical religions, but the mystery schools and the secret societies and how that organizational structure is designed to enslave humankind, lead them into the first apocalypse by water, how those organizations and bloodlines cross the flood, where they begin after the flood, how they've affected our history, what they're doing today and how they plan on bringing about the end time. So it's a 6,000 year connect the dots into what I call in the book, the house of dragon. Wow. Well, that's a lot. That's a lot to absorb. Um, getting to Genesis six, it's, it's only the Bible only says, correct me if I'm wrong. It's only like a very little part, right? It only tells you just a little bit about that. What happened uh, about the giants yeah. or just about the creation of the giants as you're talking well, about yeah, in six kind, of, kind of both. Yeah. Well, yeah. From an antediluvian or before the flood perspective, you only get verses one through four in chapter six with the creation of the giants. And we don't get any more information about that before the flood, but we get a lot of information about the giants after the flood, which most people don't seem to sort of connect. Now the word giant in Genesis six, four, it goes back to a Hebrew word called nephil, which is the, uh, derived from a word nephal. Nephal is fallen or prostrate yourself. You put an I am on that, that's the nephalim, which would be the heavenly sons of God. And the derivative is the giants, which are the nephilim with an I as opposed to an A, and the I am is the male plural. And so we don't get nephilim showing up after the flood. We do get two references all in the same verse to the nephilim, as they're translated into English as giants in Numbers 1333, where you get the embellished part of the scout report that Moses sent Caleb and Joshua and other scouts into the land of Canaan to bring back a report. And they're absolutely terrified by the descendants of Anak that they see there. And so when they go to terrify the rest of Israel so that they don't go into Israel and challenge these monsters, is they call them the Nak as the children of giants twice. And 
the word giant twice there goes back to the word Nephilim. What's interesting though, and I'll bring this to a, a quick point here, is that the Anakim, or the Anakites, or the Anak, as they're called in the Bible, they are described as giants in Deuteronomy 2 with other giant nations, only it doesn't go back to the word Nephil, it goes back to a word named Rapha, and the male plural is Raphaim, which shows up in Genesis 14 in the War of Giants, and Genesis 15 when it's describing the peoples in, in the land of the covenant. So it's the Raphaim that are talked about and are named by Raphaim 25 times in, in the Old Testament after the flood, but then you also get numerous names for the various tribes of the giants that people don't associate with them. So you get a lot more detail on the giants after the flood than before the flood. So Noah didn't even see these giants at that time? Did he, did he see any of these, or is that like after the fact, like you were saying? Well, as you get it sort of framed in the book of Genesis from a biblical perspective, you have... In chapter 5, right at the end, you get the accounting of Noah's sons and the birth of Noah. So Noah and then his three sons. And then immediately thereafter, starting in 6.1, you get the Nephilim story for four verses. And then you get a restating of Noah's genealogy in terms of uh, him and his sons and his commission to uh, build the ark because of the violence that's going to be caused. And... It's intricate with that whole story. So yes, I think the Bible places Noah in the laps and the rule of the giants, but we don't get an interaction uh, there with the Noah. We get sort of this sort of inference, but if you get into the apocryphal books or if you get into the book of Enoch or you get into polytheist or, or Gnostic accounts and also into books like the Quran, particularly the Quran talks a lot about Noah and dealing with the antediluvians and of course the leaders which are the Nephilim. So you get a lot of information about Noah mostly outside the Bible with his interactions but he is described in the book of wisdom as being sort of fleeing on a boat away from this rule of the giants uh, that sort of connects them but that's in the old King James Version apocryphal book where you get that out of. Okay okay so, um, uh, so our, our listeners can understand when you say like the, the the sons of God is that right? Is that what it says? Can you explain what exactly that means? The sons of God. Yeah. So that's a Ben Ha Elohim, which is Ben being son Ha the, and Elohim, which is uh, depending on how it's used. If it's a capital, it would be the superlative nature of the God Most High. If it is a small case E. Uh, then it would be plural for angels or gods. And so you get sort of the understanding as do, are these angels or are they gods or are they, you know, something else. But the name implies that they're the sons of God. Now, a lot of people think that that would be the name that would apply to the Sethites, which are, the, you know, the... The, is the line that uh, is alternative to Cain and supplies Noah uh, for the one that's going to survive the flood. The thing is, though, in, in the Old Testament, we get applications for the sons of God that connects them to being actually angels. So in Job 1, 6, 2, 1, and particularly in 38, 4 through 7, where you have the sons of God before creation, 
with the morning stars that are singing about creation. So these are, from an Old Testament perspective, the sons of God. Some people also think they're the sons of God from a New Testament perspective that we're going to be adopted as sons of God when we're resurrected. But that's a prophecy-based definition, and we're going to be like angels uh, through the resurrection. But it doesn't apply to the specific events of the Old Testament. So these are God's angels and watchers. And watchers shows up in the Bible four times in the book of Daniel, and they come from the throne of God. And the watchers are typically understood in polytheism as being the angels or the gods that created the giants in, in other cultures. So you get sort of, sort of cross-linking. And the watchers are four groups of angels around the throne. So you have the archangels, which most people might be familiar with, like Michael or Gabriel. Um, and there are more than just those two, but those are, those are the only two named in the official canon, although you're going to get Uriel and Raphael listed in the Old King James Version Apocryphal uh, books uh, that are also part of the seven main archangels listed in the book of Enoch. You also have the cherubim, which are the ones who in Ezekiel 1 and 10 pull the chariots uh, of God in the vision. And you also have um, ones that are in the wheel, which we don't get a name for biblically, but that word wheel is the Hebrew word ofan, and then you add the I am on there, you get ofanim, which are sort of the wheel angels, and that's the ofanim that are named as watchers around the throne in the book of Enoch. So one of the connections why we know Enoch, at least at one time, came out of Hebrew, because it has a lot of words that come out of the Hebrew language. And then you have this infamous seraphim. And the seraphim are kind of at the top of the angelic order. And these are six-wing angels, as they're described in Isaiah 6. And they worked as ministers before the throne of God and handled governance, just as they're depicted as these watchers that come from the throne in Daniel 4. And they have serpent faces. So these are dragon angels, um, like the dragon serpent gods in polytheism that show up in the Bible that are in charge of the religious and the governance um, edicts and control over over the earth. And of course, the rebellious ones would have that control, but not being answerable to God because they're obviously sort of rebellious. So these are the groups of angels that are talked about. So when we go back now to your question in Genesis 6 as the sons of God, these are the seraphim angels. And I add a lot in the book as to why there's so much serpent imagery around the royal uh, coats of arms around the iconology of the ancient kingships and why all the gods were, for the most part, not all, but most of them were serpentine type of gods or dragons all around the world, not only just in the Bible, not only just in the Middle East. And that starts to explain why all that is. Wow. So, um, when this happened in Genesis 6, these were like, I'm uh, just trying to understand this, these were like angels, right, that were, yes. were in heaven. And what, they were enticed by uh, the, the women, the ancestors or, or whatever of, of Adam, is that, is that right? Yeah, that's the superficial story to it. And that, I would say, is part of the story, but it's not sort of core what happens. So you have an angelic rebellion. And so you have a war that takes place, and for a period of time that continues to this day, these gods and or angels, as they're known biblically, are the ones that rule this earth. And 
I won't go into the details of what that sort of looks like, but just for that as sort of the uh, background, unless you want to get deeper into those details. But typically angels are spirit beings and they come from the spirit realm, but they have the ability to take a physical form. And we know this biblically, and we know this from other cultures and around the world, but biblically we know this because in the time of Sodom after the flood, in the time of Abraham, we get men showing up that are angels that are first aren't recognized as angels. And then you have angels also as men in the Sodom story who are recognized as angels and they want to have sex with them. Um, and so we know they can take a physical body because they're talking, they're touching, they're eating, they're drinking, they're touching uh, and sort of interacting in the physical world. And how that happens, because that's one of the things why people say, well, if they're spirit beings, how can they take a physical form and... Well, that's sort of the changeling kind of concept. And we get that from what is known as the Oikaterian concept, which is comes out of Jude 1.6 for a passage that describes the angels when they left their original habitation in heaven. That word is Oikaterian for habitation. And we get that word used one other time in 2 Corinthians 5 for the house in heaven. And the house or the dwelling place is the word oiketarian and the definition for the greek oiketarian is a dwelling place for the spirit so you need a soul and a body which is the dwelling place in the physical world for an interdimensional spirit being to be housed so that it can interact in the physical world so it creates this physical body so that it can pass on its genes to reproduce the giants but because the world is corrupted because it has all of this influence of rebellion and things, and because they have a physical body, just as humans, you get affected by the same temptations and issues that you have uh, as humans have. And so getting that back to that they found the uh, human females good looking, that would come from those natural sort of senses because there's no marriage in heaven. There's no sex in heaven. It's against the laws of creation. And it's against those laws in the physical world as well, but these angels had already rebelled. And so the backdrop to the story of humankind is, is that the Adamites are the solution to the angelic rebellion. And in response to the creation of the Adamites, you have the fall of Adam and Eve in Eden, and then you have the creation of the giants to lead them away from God and into obliteration so that they can't be raised up like angels in the future time and then judge those angels for the crimes that they committed, not only against creation, but the crimes they committed against humanity. Wow. So uh, these, these were already angels that have fallen and their goal was to reproduce so they have to have that physical body to more or less what rule the world and and be take over the world is that is, is that no they, they can appear as a spirit being in this world but you okay. can't sort of interact and touch and things right so mm. they need they, they need the ability to do that so they would appear in pretty much any sex that they chose that's how you get gods and goddesses mm -hmm. and in any sort of size or form but typically they would choose the form of what they would look like um, from a, an angelic description in, 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 in the spiritual world. So seraphim were serpent-like beings. 
So you see those gods show up around the world, whether or not it's with the uh, Kishamaya and the Aztecs and the South American Indians with Veracoca, Quetzalcoatl, all of those serpent or plume serpent gods. And you get the same type of gods in the North American First Nation tribes. And you get the Nagas in India, you get the dragon creator gods in uh, China. And you get all of these sort of serpent gods out of Sumeria, whether or not it's Tiamat and the parent gods, or it's Enlil and Anki are depicted as serpents, Osiris and Isis were serpent gods, and on and on and on, all around the Mediterranean, you get these serpent-like gods, which are that physical manifestation of what they are in heaven as a spiritual being. So somehow you get a, you would have that identity with those looks in the uh in the spirit world but it would be from a spiritual sense so you could see a spirit because they're opalescent beings but you can't really touch them right then you can't really interact with them okay but but they can interact with you into your body that's where the avatar avatar effect comes from Is that like possession different than possession it's more of a symbiotic relationship that adds power so it's by a god as opposed to the demon spirit which is the body bodiless spirit of a nephilim or a raphaim that's not permitted to sleep when it dies like human are human beings are and, and it's going to wander the earth so it needs to have a place of rest it needs to possess a physical body human or animal but to rest it needs to be in a physical body and if they want to interact in the world physically they need that oikotarian as well but demons suppress the host so there's a war going on with that where with the angelic type of being people are inviting that uh, angel or god into them and it will add wisdom and power to them and it will be shared uh, symbiotically, at least from the outer appearance it is. So we get an example, for example, let's say out of the Indian pantheon, which is the best way to understand this, is Vishnu was an avatar over 10 times. And one of his avatars was Buddha. And from entering into Buddha when Buddha was a child, provided the wisdom uh, to be able to start the, the Buddha religion. So that's the concept outside the Bible. In the Bible, we get that concept with Judas at the time of the betrayal of Jesus that Satan enters into him to give him the courage to continue with that process. So uh, are you also saying that this could happen like to today to someone who is a actually a saved Christian as well? Would that happen to them? Well, typically, uh, you, you're going to have to invite uh, somehow, some way, either an angel or a demon like a, in. Like, a, like open up a portal or, or something. Yeah. And okay. you can do it without knowing you're doing it. So wow. if you get uh, into rituals or um, astral projections and all sorts of things where you're entering into those realms, you are opening doors and implicitly inviting them in because you're opening the door for them even not you haven't said come in but in a lot of the occult religions and particularly with shamans and and uh, the priests and priestesses of polytheism they're looking for the spirit realm to come and add to their power and knowledge so when the uh, uh sons of god um saw these women that were beautiful um what do you, why do you think that they just wanted to do that and and and, and breed with them and do like a physical thing what, what was their goal there well i think there's a, a physical nature to that just as what we would feel right 
But there was something else that they did that is the harem anathema that is talked about in the uh, Book of Enoch, which is a Hebrew word that goes back to, you know, uh, a curse or an oath to carry it out to the end, as it translates out of Hebrew. And that 200 of the fallen ones had sworn an oath originally to carry out this plan to mate with human females to create the demigods to destroy humankind so they would not be raised. So you get sort of, I guess, as a byproduct, the sense and, and maybe in, in the enjoyment of the physical nature of procreation, but it's done through the seditious and um, vengeful vengeful nature of the what they would view as the down-the-road rivals that would be uh, raised above them and they would end up going to, to, to the lake of fire. So there's two parts to that sort of equation. And then not only do it once, they do it more than once. So in the book of Genesis, we get that they went to the human females and then they did it again. And we're not told whether that's before the flood again, which is probably likely, and or after the flood again. But what we do know is a different kind of giant shows up after the flood. So either Nephilim or Rephaim, some of the Rephaim survived the flood, or there's a second incursion that it's known um, sort of from a biblical perspective or a second recreation of the giants after the flood. And we get all sorts of different kinds of giants that kind of show up both before and after the flood. But that's because there's different kinds of angels and different kinds of gods. There's many ranks and orders. And some of them have faces that are not serpent-like. So if you can imagine an Anunnaki, which would be understood coming out of Sumerian as a watcher, and or part of the Igigi, which is comes from the Sumerian word, um, Iggy, if I pronounced it right, I think it's a hard G in Sumerian, I-G-I, as it's transliterated, that goes back to watch, as in watchers, as sort of that root word, right? These were depicted not only with human faces, at times with wings, but also with a bird face, as they come out of the, in the, uh, the reliefs that come out of ancient Sumeria. And so they are representing a four-faced angel, that's one of the watchers where both of those faces are part of the cherubim. And so when you get uh, earthborn Anunnaki, and in the ancient alien mythos, these are just aliens, um, you get them looking like the same parents who created them in the physical world. So you get these bird or falcon-like or raven-like or owl-like giants that are created around the world. You have the Zabalba, in uh, the Kishimaya in the House of the Bat, which is the Kamazots, as the Popol Vuh uh, documents. You get the Tengu that show up in India, China, Southeast Asia, and they have these crazy bird faces, um, similar to, almost identical to the Anunnaki, or how the falcon god um, um, Horus is depicted in the Egyptian mythology. But you also get lion gods as well, like uh, Nergal, uh, or Sekhmet, or Mahis, and there's a whole list of gods that have lion faces, just as we get the lion men of Moab, and the, the lion-faced Gadites, and Air, the lion-like Arioch king of the War of Giants in Genesis 14 showing up. And then you also have these, uh, like 
when you get the word that's uh, a whale or a dragon in the Bible, a lot of time it goes back to the Hebrew word tanum, which means like a sea serpent or a dragon or a leviathan, like a Tiamat type of, uh, out of the Sumerian pantheon, um, serpent uh, god or goddess. And it can also mean a jackal. And so when you now look at, you know, a god in the Egyptian pantheon named Anubis, who's a jackal god, and who also procreated with human females and created Dog City, or I'm going to try and get the name right, uh, Sinoopolis, which Sinopheli is the sort of science of the dog people or the dog Nephilim. And you get all of these encounters around the world of these dog Nephilim. There are different types of these creations that are recorded biblically and um, outside the Bible. And from a barking god that was worshipped by the Avim, which are a division of the Raphaim after the flood, they, they worshipped a god named Nebaz, which was the barking god. Wow, man, that's a lot to soak in. My brain was turning. I'm saying, I got to ask you this, ask you that. Uh, one thing that popped up with me was, um, you think the whole reason for this, this was Satan's way of trying to uh, stop the Messiah from coming? Was was that part of the goal? Because he knew that Jesus was going to come, you know, and uh, it, it does that make sense what I'm trying to say? I mean, it, it do does. It does. I think I know where you're going with that. And just before I answer that, I gave some very fast information on these different kinds of uh, Nephilim or Raphaim. If people are interested to get more and would like to have, uh, and there's a link that's on these documents where you can go see where I published them on Facebook. You got pictures of these of these giants and these gods. Um, I have documents that I do at no charge. You get a hold of me through my website at the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, number 6conspiracy.com. Hit contact the author, ask for, give me those crazy looking giants, whether they're birds or they're serpents. I don't know what you're talking about and I'll send right. you those documents at no charge. And so it's more biblically based, but it'll have some outside information in there as well so that you understand how it crosses over into the mystical religions that, that are around the world. Back to the question, which was, was Satan trying to prevent the Messiah from being born. Yes, they knew after Abraham was created, and probably even before, that the Word was going to be made flesh, which is the Word of God, which is a slightly different than God the Father, right? You have the Spirit, you have the Word, who created all things at the command of God, and He's going to be made flesh at some point in time, or there's going to be just a human Messiah coming could be because the Judaic people kind of understand the Messiah not from the Son of God aspect, but just from the human sort of nature, which is, from a Christian perspective, half true. You have the other half, which is the word who is implanted by the Holy Spirit. So, Israel is created um, through the descendants of Abraham to be an alternative way on earth and to be the next step of the resolution to the angelic rebellion, which is going to require the birth of the Messiah. And so in the Exodus, after Israel is raised to a nation with the 70 sons of Jacob in Egypt, they're leaving to conquer the land of God. And we know that's the land of God because 
and I give lots of examples in, in, in the book, in polytheism, how the whole world is divided up amongst the gods, just as that's described in Deuteronomy 32 as the same numbers as the nations, which were the same number, and this is what it says in, in, in Deuteronomy 32, the same number as the sons born to Jacob in Egypt, which is 70, and that's the same number as the patriarchs and the nations recorded in the Bible, which is 70, and it also says as the same number as the sons of Adam, not, not all the sons of Adam are listed, but the 70 sons of Adam that seemingly he had, based on that passage, numbered the nations over the earth. And then in Psalm 82, you have this really odd passage that most people like to skip over. Um, it's called the Council of the Gods. And this, this is the council that Satan heads up, and these gods rule over the earth. They rule over uh, with their pantheon, their organizational structure, over those 70 nations. And so um, this, when you understand that the word is divided, and the angels were given their portions, just as Deuteronomy 32 talks about, just as the polytheist accounts talk about God, who is considered an angel in polytheism, no greater than, in, than the other angels, but just another angel who went rogue um, from the pantheon, had his portion as well. And that was the land of Israel, which he was going to now gift to his nation of priests that he was bringing about to bring about the Messiah to resolve the angelic rebellion and and allow humankind to become like angels in the, in the future time. So as they're going into out of Egypt and into this land, this land is absolutely overflowing with giant nations and hybrid humans created from the offspring of giants and human females as well. You get both listed in in, in the Bible and that they're going to try and wipe Israel from the face of the earth. And the first nation that attacks them, well, they're still a ragtag nation, not trained in military, not trained for war, did not have weapons, is a nation called Amalek. Now, Amalek is the son of Timna, Ahorim, and Eliphaz, the son of Esau. That's really important because Esau was the brother of Jacob, who Jacob tricked and took his birthrights because Esau was the firstborn of, of, of Isaac. And so Jacob, who changes his name to Israel, receives the Messianic blessing, receives the birthrights and the other blessings of the inheritance. And Esau got nothing. This is a descendant of Esau who marries Timna, who is the sister of Lotan, and they're both offspring of a horim named Seir, which goes back to a Hebrew word that is connected to the word Sair, which is what we call a satyr, as it's transliterated in the Bible as twice, and that's sort of this hairy devil goat god is how a satyr is understood. Horim are giants, they are Raphaim. So you have another branch from Isaac that his descendants are marrying in with the Horim, starting a new dynasty and a new race of Amalekites that are trying to wipe Israel from the face of the earth so that they can receive those birthrights and blessings and put their own dragon messiah on the throne. And then as you continue, they're going into the, this land of Rephaim and Rephaim hybrid, uh, hybrid humans, 
um, who are not this innocent people. These are the ultimate warrior states that are formed into complex metapolis city-states, which is five city-states, five city-states that are working in an alliance and then working with other alliances of that number as well. So fortresses with villages and things in between. King Og, who they attack before they cross into the Covenant land after 40 years in the wilderness, he had 60 cities, so 12 pentapolis city-state forts in the Mount Hermon region where the original oath was taken to make the giants. Uh, and his partner, Sihon, had close to 40 cities. I don't get 40 added up in the Bible, but typically it's all five city-states. And then they were allied with the Midianites who were the offspring of Keturah and Abraham and had also had a stake in eliminating Israel to inherit those birthrights as well, they had five kings in their pentapolis. And so when we start to understand that these Israelites were going up with people which with the hybrids, and these are what are called, for people who might be familiar with Numbers 1333 in the Scout Report, reports of people that are taller and stronger than Israel, that are separate from the Anakim. And this is also reaffirmed in Deuteronomy 1 as well. And so these are the hybrids. It's what the Egyptians called in the land of Canaan, the Shazu. And they're also called from more of a, let's say, a Syrian and Mesopotamian perspective, the Shamal and the Amal. They're six to nine feet tall versus the Raphaim, as King Og would have been somewhere between let's say 12 to 15 feet tall. Wow. And we get that from his bed size. And he was a king, so he'd be measured with 21 inches, as Josephus marks the account. Um, and he was uh, nine, his bed was nine cubits uh, in length and four cubits uh, wide. And that sort of reflects the height, the width ratio that the Raphaim had, a two to one versus a three to one of the average human. So they were incredibly stout, wide and strong and huge. So a cubit would be 18 inches on a standard, 21 inches on the royal cubit. So nine cubits would put that somewhere between 13 and a half feet to 16 feet. So somewhere between 12 and 14 or 15 feet, however you want to measure the cubit is King Og, and he's twice as wide as, as, as a human being is. So these are monsters compared to an Israelite that would have been five to five and a half feet tall. And even 400 years later, Goliath, who is also a son of Rapha, either a giant named Rapha or a specific unnamed uh, giant, Josephus names him as Raph, though, so very, very similar to the, to the name. And Rapha is that word giant, and Raphaim is the plural. He's the son of one of those giants or son of the people. He is six cubits and a span at the time of David, when David takes him on. And even if that's 18 inches, that makes him nine feet, nine inches tall. If it is a royal cubit, because I think he's the king of of, a, of Gath, and Ashish takes over after Goliath dies, which is that sort of natural succession that they have from the Philistines. Um, and there's five Philistine kings there that day from the five-nation Pentapolis. And so David had five smooth stones because he thought he might have to kill all five kings that day. He didn't think he was going to miss. And so Goliath would have been on the tall side, 11 feet, three inches. Wow. 
Wow. And and what David was probably what five something. Yeah, five, it was just sort of average in size, yeah. right? So right. Uh, wow. King Saul was considered taller than the average um, Israelite. He was a full neck and head taller than every other Israelite, mm-hmm. and and was you know quite the warrior. And so it's thought that he was selected because the Israelites wanted and demanded a king so they could be like the other nations who had giant kings to protect them. And Saul was one of the best warriors and he was taller than everybody else. So I think that's quite an unusual connection as to what they were demanding. And then we get his description and then he's even named, even though that's more of a title than his name. Um, Egyptian records like the Armana uh, letters in the tablets, they record him as Labiah, which is the Lion of God, which is, uh, sort of comes out of Hebrew, um, well, does come out of Hebrew. So Saul's his name, and it's almost like a title that he was establishing for the dynasty, but Saul is a name that comes out of the Dukes of Edom, which are where Seir, the king of Seir, starts his dynasty as a Raphaim that Amalek is going to uh, be produced through the marriage of Timna and Eliphaz. And Saul is a whoring. So King Saul of Israel takes a whoring name, probably because he's they're trying to set up his mythos like a giant king because he's taller than everybody else. But that's just my speculation. But wow. where the name comes from, that's the first Saul we get listed in the Bible way before King Saul um, is, is born. And then even the Quran has a different name for uh, Saul as well as being his original name. So, Wow. So um, when you were mentioning earlier about these different creatures with different faces, and people have, have witnessed this, they have seen these things. Is, is, have you found that out? Have people actually seen these not too long ago? Well, there's a, like, you know, you can Google like, you know, dogmen sightings. It's, it brings up dots all over the world in the last, mm-hmm. you know, 20 or 30 years. I don't know whether that's true or not. Right. I, I, what I do know is, is there's history of them being recorded by historians as, as the dog people. Um, and we have all of these reliefs and depictions of these serpentine beings and statues of not only the gods, but their, their kings. Uh, we get the, the Rapiu that are recorded as the offspring of Baal of Mount Hermon in the Ugaritic texts. And we also get the dimension of Gilgamesh in there, which is the exact same dimension as the dimension in the Sumerian texts of the Epic of Gilgamesh, where he is 11 cubits tall and four cubits wide. So that makes him, because he's the king of Uruk on 21 inches, 19 feet and change tall, and probably 19.3 to 19.6 to quickly doing the math, um, and seven feet wide, six to seven feet wide if it's uh, only 18 inches. So he's even bigger than um, King August, and he is a post-Diluvian giant. And so the antediluvian giants were thought to be even bigger. They're thought to be somewhere between 20 and 40 feet tall. Some people well, will look at the Book of Enoch and take the word Els, which is in the Aramaic translation called a cubit. They're described as having as being 300 cubits, but that would make them like at least 450 feet tall, which seems a little bit unlikely. And what's more likely is L is the true ancient measurement 
older than the qubit, the antediluvian, but we don't know how big an L is. So it's really mm -hmm. hard to extrapolate from that. What's interesting though, with the Amorites, which are a hybrid Rephaim race who do not have a patriarch as named in the Bible and Raphaim patriarch names aren't listed in the table of nations, but they are listed in the Bible. So like with the Raphaim and Rapha, you don't get. The one for the Anakim is Arba, uh, and who's the father of the Anakim race. He's not listed in the table of nations just for a couple of quick examples. So in the Canaanites who settle in after Babel to with the giants who are already there after the flood, they intermarry with them. And so Canaan is a Hamite, and he has two sons named Sidon and Heth. But there's nine other tribes of Canaanites, like the Amorites, like the Jebusites. I won't go through all the names. They do not have a patriarch, wow. which means this is the source of those ones. And, and, and those peoples are the names that are listed as the ones taller than Israel, but separate from the Anakim. So these are the Shazu. These are the hybrid Raphaim giants that lived amongst the giants, and the giants were the rulers and the kings and the royal dynasties. And when you understand that royale is etymology goes etymologically goes back to roi or R-O-I as an old French for king, and back to regal and regalis out of Latin and back into the languages for being uh, a king. And then L, A-L, is the transliteration for E-L, which is the word, Hebrew word for God or angel. And A-L would be the preferred spelling or transliteration in Sumeria, or I-L, or I-L-U, or I-L-L-U, or A-L-L-A. They're all transliterations of the same word meaning God or an angel. And so these are the kings of God because they are the offspring of the gods, the angels, and receive their divine right to rule from those gods. And they keep their genealogies right through to this day because the purity of that genealogy and how many other ennobled bloodlines, in other words, how many genealogies that go directly back that are pure to a specific Nephilim, Raphaim, and fallen angel, that are intermarried in as what they call scioning, which is a sort of a double entendre in the occult, uh, scion as in grafting in the bloodline, or scion as being the first uh, son, as being called a scion. Um, that's the bloodline that would be the most pure that you would want as being grafted into your, into your dynast dynastic genealogies and lineage that would raise you higher in that hierarchical cult. Wow. Are these the, the, the same of um, demons and um, Satan's angels that, that uh, God's angels fight during a spiritual battle? Is, is, is that who they face? Yeah, so you're referring to Revelation 12 in the yeah. end time where there's the war in heaven, and Satan and his angels storm heaven, and there's a war where they're trying to overtake heaven, just as Satan tried to do, as it's described in Isaiah 14, where he wanted to be like God, raise his throne up to be God, but that rebellion failed. So this happens in the last seven years of this age, as end-time prophecy goes. It happens after Revelation 9, which is really important, because Revelation 9 is where the abyss is located, uh, the, the abyss story is, where um, an angel is sent down to open the abyss and release the impassioned and the worst 
criminals of the angels into the earth just before uh, the midpoint, probably at least a year before the midpoint of the last seven years, but after the start of the last seven years, as well as the terrible ones, which are the worst of the demon spirits, which are the worst of the Nephilim, the worst of the Raphaim who did terrible things on earth to humankind, were killed um, and are locked in the sides of the abyss. They are coming out before this war in heaven. So they're going to be amongst us. Um, and when we talk about that, we need to understand that not all the rebellious angels were put into the abyss. Only the ones who did the, the most horrible things like violations against the laws of creation and the impassioned ones were put in the abyss. That means all the other angels that rebelled are still out there, but they're going to be joined by these in, in the last seven years. And at the midpoint, they're going to storm heaven along with Antichrist as being along with them because Antichrist is there in Revelation 12 with Satan and he receives his power from the dragon in Revelation 13. And he's depicted in Daniel 8 as war taking his kingdom and empire of the end time up to heaven and actually bringing down some of the starry host and trampling on them. Wow. Wow. That's a lot to absorb, man. That's a lot. Yeah, that's very interesting. Do you, do you um you hear about people talking about like the UFOs and things like that? Do you, do you think that has anything to do with these um, spiritual beings that you're talking about today? I mean, it, it, does that kind of does that kind of relate to that? Okay, I do. I do think so. And you know, when I'll, and and it's directly connected to the ancient alien mythos as well. So when they're looking at the history, as I look at it from a biblical monotheist lens, they're looking at it from their ancient uh, alien mythos, and they're talking about the same beings. Mm -hmm. They just have sort of a different understanding of them as not being gods or angels, but as being technologically advanced beings. Right, and there's different levels of that technologically advanced beings, and they recognize the Anunnaki in the alien mythos as being aliens, and just as Sitchin wrote about the Earthborn aliens and the uh, the ones that came from another planet. Right, so there's a different lens that they look at it with. So when we keep that in mind, is that not only were the Nephilim created, but in polytheism, and particularly, they create a lot of different kinds of beings. They create probably the Bigfoot, which are, have some relationships with the Nephilim. They create the little people. Uh, they create centaurs. They create all sorts of other creatures as well with some sort of either it's either sexual manipulation or gene manipulation to create these types of beings. And so you get this whole sort of nomenclature in the alien mythos of these different types of beings, including reptilian beings. Now, if you consider Nephilim, are, were, some of them were reptilian-looking beings. But also, you had the, the original Nakash, or the Nahash, as it's pronounced in Hebrew, which is that serpent that's mentioned in the Bible, who deceives Eve, that's a walking, talking, intelligent uh, being whose name goes back in Hebrew etymology back to being a wizard and an enchanter and sort of part of the occult religions that follow the pantheon. And this is the being that, you know, is a serpent-like being. And so he loses his legs and his intelligence and everything else and is forced to crawl on the ground as we understand it today. But 
if angels or fallen angels saved some of those, just as a lot of people believe that the gods saved some of the Raphaim and the, or I mean the Nephilim, so that they would survive, which is how, from another view, how they would you know show up after the flood. Then you could make that same case for the serpent kind of being. And then in the little people, these are the elementals. There's four categories of little people. The fourth category, which I don't talk about in the Bible, is the salamander group. And there are reptilian people that are taller than humans, but not as tall as the Nephilim. You also have the other three, which I do talk extensively in my book about, that are divided into three groups on all continents around the world, except for Antarctica, and who knows what will be found there down the road. But you have three groups that are typically understood as good-looking ones, mischievous ones like leprechauns, and then ugly ones like hobbits and uh, gnomes and dwarves. And typically in the ugly ones in mythology, dwarves lived in the earth like they do in the Lord of the Rings. And they make weapons for the demigods, which are the giants and are depicted as the white elves, which are sort of a Tuatha de Danan um, understanding as being elf-like, as pale white skin blue eyes, blonde hair, or red hair, hazel eyes, and pale skin. Um, and they're the noble uh, noble elven bloodline um, and are depicted in Lord of the Rings. But going back to the dwarves, they're the ones that make the weapons for the demigods and or the gods. But I typically think more for the demigods because gods can make any weapon they want. They have all of the technology and they supply it. So, But there's one group in there that's very interesting and within that is they're the gnomes and they guarded the knowledge which where gnosticism comes from the word same sort of to know um and they guarded the technology and the genealogies of the ancient ones and they had flying machines that come through portals fairy mounds fairy dolmens, as they're also called. Dolmen means portal. So when you see fairy dolmen, it's the fairies are coming through those. And the fairy dolmens are like mini Stonehenge type of um, rock formations that are all over the world. And if you Google dolmen, you'll get a picture of it. If you fairy, uh, Google fairy dolmen, you'll get the same picture of it. They would come through these uh, portals and their reputation was as they would kidnap people for at least a fortnight, at least out of the Scottish tradition, but they kidnap people all around the world. They do experimentations on people. They do sexual experimentations on people. They return some of them. They don't have memories unless you go into some sort of hypnosis or some other transcendental state to retrieve that memory. And these ones are called the gray gnomes. And I put descriptions of two fairy abductions that were, were recorded um, in my book. And if you didn't know it was a fairy abduction, you would swear it was a great alien encounter and abduction. Wow. So I wow. think what we're going to see represented in the end time is a conflation of all of this information, but typically it's going to lean towards the ancient alien mythos that all of these angels and their other created beings that somehow they either recreated after the flood or they survived will show up and they need to have a plausible story and a narrative to say who they are. 
and look for them to be revealed as aliens. Now, within that, obviously, angels as changelings can take different sort of shapes, right? And demons, though, which are the bodiless spirits of the giants that have died, they're going to need an oiketarian that we talked about. They're going to need a body, whether it's a clone body, a transhuman body, but one that they're not fighting the host on so that they can interact in the world. So you can imagine with the technology that's a, a, a developing today that you could create these oiketarians that look in all sorts of different kinds of forms and, and looks of different kinds of animals because you're just manipulating DNA within the cloning of, of a body. And that would become the oiketarian because it wouldn't have that spirit that comes from heaven. It only has a soul and a body and it's going to require a spirit that the demon spirit's going to fill. Wow. So when someone sees a UFO, is that, the, is that how they get around? Well, technically, you know, I don't think angels need to do that unless they want to be doing something in the physical world, but their offspring definitely needs it. Mm -hmm. But we also get stories out of polytheism and in, the, in their legends, and the Greek are probably very good on this, and same with the, the Vedas, but I'll use the Greek one to, to begin with. And... They have like Zeus and Apollo, for example, riding their chariots being led with six horses and in some depictions it's, it's six unicorn horses that pull the chariot. And what's interesting about that is, is that's like a chariot of the gods, just as um, Van Doniken wrote about in the 70s. And when I was a young person, I was just absolutely blown away by, by his connections. Um, I think he's a little bit you know, I don't necessarily agree with that today, but he looks at it through that that alien mythos. And we get that vision, as we talked about earlier in Ezekiel 1 and 10, with the chariot of God as a vision of God, not actually that Ezekiel went to heaven or God came to the earth, but it was a vision. And so in the Bible, you have the cherubim, as we talked about, that are pulling the chariots, right? But... The unicorn is thought in polytheism not only to be a physical being that the Nephilim used to ride into war in a battle before the flood, but it was also an allegory for a angelic kind of being, a very, very important kind that was very high up like a watcher. Mm. And so typically they're understood as, as being the cherubim. And it's an allegory for the cherubim that are pulling it. And it makes sense from the perspective, if you understand, and it doesn't matter which side of the fence that you're on, if you're a polytheist or a monotheist, you're going to say the flip side of what the other one's going to say. So from a Christian biases, everything that the fallen angels do is they counterfeit what God does. And so from a Christian perspective, that's a counterfeit of their pantheon and their throne rooms for rolling the the earth that what God has in heaven. From a polytheist side, they would say that, no, no, the, the rogue monotheist religion is copying the chariots that the gods had that run not only this world, but the rest of the universe. So it depends on what lens that you're looking at it through. So yeah, I would, I would look at it from that kind of perspective in terms of that the gods do have vehicles that they use in this world. And then when you get into the Vedic and the Upanishads uh, of, of India, you get them in these 
incredible flying machines with weapons that can destroy worlds and universes and things like that. And there's this war of the gods that are going on. And I think that's a, rem, uh, a reflection of the ancient angelic rebellion on the first go around. So if that's true, then you can imagine that this war in heaven that comes in the last seven years is going yeah. to be unbelievable in terms of the weaponry that's going to be used. It's stuff that no one's ever seen before, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, so, uh, Gary, if, if you look at today and, and what our country's going through, you literally see good versus evil today, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. do, do you think uh, a lot of that is also with these um, these these demons that you're talking about it, it, it's is that what they're doing right now to try to push their mission yeah but in a, in, a, in a very very deceptive sort of manner so sort of break it down simply is is there is this continual war that is going on both what we can see and what we can't see from the spiritual realm and in the physical realm and the physical representatives of the spirit realm are the nobility and the elite and the royal bloodlines who made up all of the upper class including the priesthoods and running the churches and the bloodlines all throughout our history and controlled all of the literature all of the knowledge all of the governorship and they want to bring about a rendezvous with destiny to stand up with their gods against the evil god of the universe the God of the Bible. So they want this end time showdown and they want to have the whole world lined up against the God of the Bible. So they need a world government and they need that mystical religion we talked about earlier as part of it. All the beast empires recorded in the Bible have the daughter of Babel, the daughter of Babylon from the post-Diluvian religion, which comes from Enochian mysticism Enoch, son of Cain, not Enoch, son of Jared from the Seth line. There's two Enochs. That religion that established the mystery schools, that established the seven sacred sciences that we know as the seven liberal arts, that, that established the mystical religion to house this and established the secret societies that merged with the knowledge from the gods or from heaven or from the fallen angels, as the book of Enoch talks about. This is that religion that they need to bring about in the end time that revelation talks about babylon and babylon is able to bring about the 10 king empire of the end time and these are 10 groups of nations or spheres of influence as they're being talked about today and as i talked about uh in my book that they're trading blocks spheres of influence groups of nations whatever you want to call them that are going to form up in the end time and we get those 10 empires listed in Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Revelation 13, and Revelation 17. And it's the new Atlantis that they want to bring about. And Atlantis, coming out of Greek mythology, is a very good parallel to the Nephilim story, where you have Poseidon, which is a god, who takes a human female and creates 10 demigods. So these are heroes, titans, and definition of a demigod is the offspring of a god and a human female, as it was understood in ancientology. And Atlantis was sort of the 
most advanced civilization of the antediluvian world and was trying to take over the whole world um, just before the flood comes. Mm. Mm. And so uh, you have this, this recreation of this first time. Zeptepi, as it's called in, in Egyptian mythology, that's the new age, that's the new Atlantis. And that word, the new Atlantis, comes from Francis Bacon's book, The New Atlantis, which has this end-time religion and this end-time government and this new age um, that's going to be uh, developed where everything is utopian like it was in Atlantis before it went sour. Because in all antediluvian societies, it starts off with the demigods as being ju judicious, but then it goes sour because they become evil, they become corrupted within their bodies, and become evil tyrants. But they want to create this new age where that's going to be the same scenario, except the promises the demigods won't go um, evil. Um, mm. But that's what they're promising for the new age. That's the rendezvous with destiny they want to bring about. So they need world government, and they need a world religion, and mm. they need all of both of that. The new, so that the new they world can, order. The new, the world, new world order, order as yeah. I like to call it, the Nephilim world order, mm -hmm. uh, because of the royal bloodlines, mm -hmm. and that they need to form that, and that they need that in place so that they can, as they call it in the new age, or Gnosticism, or Theosophy, that they can vibrate e or evolve into Godhood, which is going to be one of the promises of the new Atlantis and, 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 the, and the new age. So when we look at that 10 number that's going to come about, we have a secret society that was created, and understand the secret societies are overseen by the royal bloodlines and what you look at the bottom level as freemasonry is sort of mm -hmm. introductory level into this hierarchy and that the rosicrucians are sort of part way up not all the way there but they are 50 percent at the top of that level of that organization of the pure bloods and then committee of 300 and up are royal bloodlines there's an organization created in the late 1960s called the club of rome Depending on who you're talking to, they either report into the top level of the of the Rosicrucians or into the committee of 300 families. And of course, there's the 33 uh, Council of 33 above that, and then you have the 13 families above that, and then you also have the other bloodlines and or and hierarchical structure around the world. So understand that's just the European sort of hierarchy. Mm. So the Club of Rome was created to, you guessed it, to organize the world into 10 groups of nations. And you can Google that and mm. have the, how they divide it up. I'm, I'm not convinced it ends up in the same spheres of influence as they mapped out, mm -hmm. but you get the general picture. So when you see countries like China and Russia who are looking to expand their empires, they're looking to have a larger role in this Nephilim world order that is larger than what the Europeans would like to see them have. Is that so what's the, going on with Ukraine right now, you think? That's exactly what's going on with Ukraine. So mm -hmm. Putin uh, isn't typically understood as being of royal bloodline. He's a bit of a pseudo bloodline or a strong man that they might say but he has some ties to the royal families and important royal families so his grandfather in about the 1850s 
is born sort of out of nowhere. His name comes out of nowhere. There's no Putins before that. But he's born in Kiev and in the Ukraine area. Mm -hmm. And with the royal families of that region, if they had a baby born out of wedlock, it would not receive the full name. So the family that he was born to out of wedlock is the Putyanin. And the Putyanin are the original czars of, of not only the Ukraine, but then as it expanded and set up Moscow. Now the Putyanin you don't recognize as a bloodline of the czars because the Romanovs take over in about the 1600s. Just, and that's the name that was still in power with the Russian Revolution. But this is the original czars of Tartaria, if you've heard that term, and, um, and of the Cossacks. And so this is that larger ancient empire and the legitimacy that Putin feels he has with that bloodline to have Kiev as part of his sphere of influence or his empire that he's looking for for the end time. So you should look for Xi. Um, to do the same thing, and mm -hmm. Xi comes out of the uh, the Shah dynasties, which were all of the dynasties of the Chinese before uh, the communists took over. And Li is the typical name that comes out of those dynasties, but the Western division was the Shah um, XIA, as opposed to the shortened for. XI, as you see in his name, as part of his, his family name, they were created by the dragon creator gods mm -hmm. that ruled the dynasty. And they're looking to, you know, re-establish what they would look as their ancient size of their empire that would go into Southeast Asia and have a bigger role for the end time. So look for different bloodlines all around the world to be re-establishing themselves as we move further along this trajectory. People ask me, are, are we, you know, in the last seven years? The answer is no, we're, there's lots too much to be built. But I think it's on the horizon that we're in that, maybe in that last generation. Mm -hmm. But a generation biblically, you know, it can be 40 years, it can be 70 years, or it could be 120 years. And then you need to know what the, the countdown of the fig tree generation is. I think it's the capture of Jerusalem uh, because uh, Judah and Judea as being visibly seen in the end time and in the land of the covenant and in particularly in control of Jerusalem and also being allegorically in prophetic allegory as known as the fig tree. Uh, needs to be in place for the end time. So that's there. So if we are in the end time, that might be where it ticks down. But there's we're a long ways from world government right now. We're a long mm -hmm. ways from uh, world religion. But we might be in what they call the beginning of sorrows, which are the birth pangs that are recorded in Matthew uh, 24, 7 to 8. And then you get some of the events that happen afterwards. Also in Mark 13, you get that as well, the, the beginning of sorrows. And what that means, those are birth pangs that will get stronger as we get closer to the start of the last seven years. And they're a, they're a set of catastrophes that keep repeating. So there are wars, rumors of war, pestilence, uh, earthquakes, and famine. And they're contrived catastrophes because it's all done by what we do on earth. And they're going to grow. So we've seen pestilence show up not the size of what it's going to get to be. I think we're starting to see a shuffling going on to bring about this new world order. 
And so we're starting to see more of the wars. We do see earthquakes starting to get stronger. Um, and famine is going to follow with those other three catastrophes. And those are going to get stronger. And I think we're going to see a lot of apocalyptic type of events that people will think is leading to Armageddon. And eventually mm -hmm. it will. Mm -hmm. But because all the catastrophes are the same as in the seal judgments, which are 25% destruction, as with the same catastrophes as in the um, trumpet judgment, which is 33%, and the, the wrath bowls that are poured out in the year of the Lord's wrath, so in the last year of the last seven, which would be 100%, except that Jesus steps in from a biblical perspective to prevent all flesh from being destroyed, uh, you get that, that increasing of those birth pangs. And so when people even look at, let's say, wormwood in Revelation 6 as being, you know, there's lots of interesting theories out there about a planet that's coming closer and things like that, possibly, but wormwood, as it's understood from a Hebrew perspective, and understand this, this were Jewish people at the time of the writing of a revelation and, and the New Testament that is written down into Greek, but not in the Hebrew language, and I wish it was. But if you take wormwood back to um, Hebrew, it's understood as a poison, like a hemlock. So this seems like some sort of worldwide poison that could be like radiation or something like that from a nuclear fallout. I'm just speculating. Mm -hmm. it. But mm -hmm. here's the freaky thing. We had a nuclear catastrophe in Chernobyl in the Ukraine in the 80s, mm -hmm. and it, it, it had contamination all over the world. Well, people don't know that Chernobyl, when you take that back and its meaning in its Ukrainian language, means wormwood. Wow. Wow. So again, I don't know whether that's the poison or not, but right, right, <laughs> this wow. certainly certainly could be. Right. So, so uh, is when the new world order, you know, will that happen before or after the rapture? Well, there's different views on that. So uh, typically, you're going to see if you if you're from somebody who believes that the rapture will happen, <clears throat> excuse me, before the last seven years. <clears throat> then you will see pretty much the rise of Babylon, the rise of the Ten King Empire. Maybe you're taking just before the covenant that's created that sets off the last seven years or just after. So the odds are if you're from a pre-trib rapture, as people um, in layman terms call it, uh, you'll see pretty much all of it, but then be removed. And people look at Antichrist who negotiates that covenant as being that sign for the rapture. I think um, I think we ought to hope for that. I'm not convinced biblically mm -hmm. that's what it says. Right. I think it says later. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it's going to be a tragedy that really um, puts humans in a point of discrediting themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm very careful when we talked about the other events and mm -hmm. how we're going to be fooled in terms of what we think Armageddon is. And even in Revelation 6, at the destruction of the 25% uh, uh, of the world, you know, at the last verse in there, it has all the rulers of the earth hiding within caves within the earth because they think it's the day of the Lord, but it's not yet come, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. we, we ought to keep that in mind. Antichrist doesn't take power to the midpoint. 
this he's going to be a relatively unknown individual who is not going to be rewarded a kingdom at that time as Daniel 11 talks about. Mm -hmm. And so as you get to the midpoint, he is going to do a deal with these 10 kings who have come to power to hand them the power as Revelation 17 talks about so that he can destroy Babylon, the universal religion, because it controls these empires and it grows rich from them. And Babylon is, is destroyed shortly after the start of the last seven years and then antichrist sets up his own religion where he's he and satan are worshiped the mark of the beast comes in and it's a god that the forefathers as daniel 11 talks about you know did not know so it's a new religion other than this babylon religion so i look for uh that as being when antichrist comes to power and rapture what we're told doesn't happen, we'll be saved from the wrath. And we talked about earlier, that's the year of the Lord's wrath, when the wrath bowls comes out. So it's the last year. And so I would place, from my understanding, a rapture event to happen sometime after Antichrist comes to power. Um, and after people come out of Babylon, because we're told to come out of Babylon in Revelation 18, before Antichrist destroys it, uh, but certainly before the wrath bull. So I would put it shortly after the midpoint, but you could put it right up to almost, uh, you know, <clears throat> two years to a year and a half before uh, the last year. There is one other year that might overlap or it might be a separate year in the last three and a half years. So you have the year of the Lord's wrath of the last three and a half years, and you also have the year of the Lord's favor. This really sort of gets into some eschatology, but just quickly, you're the Lord's favor that's recorded in Luke 4 and Isaiah uh, 62, as I recall, is when Jesus will come along as part of his days of his visitation, more than once. He comes, as Luke says, days, uh, and in the Old Testament, it's the time of his visitations, plural. Um, there will be this day, uh, year of the Lord's favor, where Jesus will free the captives. Those are those who awakened of lost Israel, who were lost into uh, the world by the Assyrians and starting in 721 BC, and visible Judah around the world, those who did not escape the land of the covenant at the time of the abomination, at the time of the crowning, where they go in Revelation 12 that we talked about earlier to be protected for three and a half years by God. These, these other Israelites, the awakened ones who have been imprisoned, who remembered who they are and are called by name in the last seven years, and visible Judah, that is the Judeans, the Jewish people around the world that aren't living in the land of the covenant, they're going to be led in exodus and broken from the prisons by Jesus hmm. before the day of the Lord. And then that's where Ezekiel 37 comes into play with uh, the rising of the dead bones, and that's part of the resurrection sequence. And it's also, as you get into the teens, it talks about the second exodus for the timing. So Jesus comes for rapture for those who uh, are, 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 um, are asleep in him but weren't martyred after the resurrection sequences of the martyrs, which are the first uh, fruits, as they're called. So in the resurrection sequence, we get the first uh, Christ, the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who are asleep in Jesus, not martyred, and those who are still alive. And then you're going to also have a resurrection of Israel, the dry bones we just talked about quickly in Ezekiel 37. And you also have a resurrection of those who don't receive the mark of the beast or worship Satan or Antichrist that are going to reign with Jesus uh, in the uh, 
millennium. So that's all part of the first resurrection, but there's a sequence of events. So Jesus comes for rapture and those who are asleep and then for exodus and then the resurrection of those who don't take the mark. So there's days of his visitation, all of which seems to happen after the destruction of Babylon, no. after the midpoint, after Antichrist comes to power. Now, a lot of people disagree with me on that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of disagreement on eschatology. I have a very simple approach. Um, you know, I accept everything literally, define everything within the Bible for the allegories. But one of the things I do differently than a lot of other people, and I know some people don't like it when I say this, but I do two things. One is, is I don't ignore the inconvenient passages. So everything has to fit. Can't, just because you don't like one passage, it doesn't quite fit in your preconceived sort of view. You can't ignore it. It either works or it doesn't. You got it right or you don't. And I also do one thing that I think is really important if there's Christians out there into prophecy is I put everything around what Jesus said and not vice versa. And Jesus mm. provides us the chronology uh, in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 17 and 21. And those aren't just arranged in some sort of topical format. If you take the language back, you get this word then that happens. And there's a couple other words where it goes back to the same Greek word, and that's the Greek word tote. That means at that time, thereafter, when. These are chronologically laid out events where you have the abomination at the midpoint of the last seven years, and he references us back to the book of Daniel to get the details of that timing. So now if you put all the revelation over top of what Jesus said, everything fits. You don't get any contradictions in the New Testament, and you don't get any contradictions in the Old Testament because... As a Christian, you would expect the Word of God, who is the spirit of prophecy and called the Word of God, both in the book of Revelations and in chapter 19, then you would expect them to have it perfect. Yeah. Wow. That's that's interesting. Before before I let you go, man, I gotta ask you this. Um are these um creatures or demons are are they are they roaming around out there today are we seeing them today and don't we don't know it are they in bodily form are they in like in human form you're talking about the nephilim now yeah and the the nephilim, yeah yeah. Are, yeah you know there's, there's some a, form of them around it's a really good question um you know and there's a lot of theories that they're in stasis like in antarctica or they're hiding in caves and that all may be the case i mean we get one interesting encounter that was carried on coast to coast uh, a number of years ago. I think it was with Steve Quayle, who was interviewing the helicopter um, person with the Air Force or the Army that had captured this giant in Afghanistan. So I think that's a good possibility that some of those have survived. I think more likely is, is that the descendants survive, mm -hmm. and it's the bloodlines right and that's the royal families and the elite that still control the world today um that are the ones they, that are working could they be, to... gary could they be in the white house um not as a pure sense but as puppets um mm -hmm. understand that the europeans consider the americans pseudo blue bloods and blue bloods being sort of the allegory for the bloodline and pseudo being you know not pure or not legitimate and typically what happens with um, less pure bloodlines and or ones who gain money and some power in their lifetime they're going to want to intermarry with their children into the bloodlines 
and increase that hierarchy level with more intermarriage within that hierarchy over generations. So people like Bill Gates, for example, whether or not he's bloodline or not, he's probably not or very, very low because he interacts with the Bilderbergers, which is, you know, all royal families at the top, all new money at the bottom. They call them in once a year, give them their marching orders. And in return, they get to intermarry with their uh, offspring with royal bloodlines. And so I think that's in place for sure. And so we need to be open, though, that not all angels are in the abyss mm -hmm. that are rebelled. And there's a lot of them, you know, mm -hmm. we get a number of 10,000 times 10,000, which is 100 million, and that could be an allegorical number, but it's a large number. And in Revelation 12, as we've talked about several times, one third of them will have fully rebelled. So there's lots of them, and not all of them are in the abyss. So as we get closer to the end time, they could violate the laws of creation again and create mm -hmm. more giants. So they could mm -hmm. recreate them. There could be the ones that show up as, as in stasis. What we do know is they're going to affect us in the end time. Mm -hmm. And there's a really interesting uh, line that comes up in Daniel 2, which is the metallic dynasties of the empires of the world. They're known also as the beast dynasties. And they're called the beast uh, empire. Um, as you get beasts in Daniel 7, as they're described, as opposed to the, the metallics like silver and gold and bronze and iron. And uh, Antichrist is called a beast, and the religion is a beast. And so it's all part of that sort of hierarchy. But uh, in Daniel 2, you have, as part of these metallic empires, which are the beast empires, and if people don't know who the beast empires are, I'll just quickly explain it. Assyria, Egypt, Egypt first, Assyria, Babylon, which Persia comes along and takes over for Greece, Rome, and then you have the end time empire, which is seven, which comes out of the ashes of the Roman Empire. And then the eighth empire, as, as Revelation 17 talks about, and what Dan, the book of Daniel talks about, when Antichrist rises at the midpoint, that's going to be the eighth empire. Okay, so in Daniel 2, out of the fifth empire, out of the uh, sixth empire, uh, you have this interesting line that they are going to mix their seed with humans, mm. which denotes this is either descendants and royal blood of the Raphaim and Nephilim, more likely Raphaim created after the flood from my biases of a second incursion versus surviving. Um, and or they are going to be new Nephilim that have been created that are going to mix their seed with humans. Or as you take that back to Hebrew, it could mean that they are possessing or avataring humans. So mm -hmm. in occultism, when we talked about uh, typically possessions, a violent thing as opposed to an avatar, with the bloodlined ones and the high level of the adepts, and as you might know them in some of the other cultures as shamans and magicians, they like to bring in the spirit realm to add to their power and typically that's not going to be a god it could be an angel or a demon but a lot of times it's a demon that they're taking in they're asking for it to come in whether or not they're just suppressed and we don't see it anymore and they're not fighting back they're receiving additional power from them and so that word co-mingle and mingle as we have it in the king james version bible could also mean a spiritual um takeover in terms of how it's defined so we need to be open to all three but whatever happens we're going to have an impact 
of the original Raphaim and Nephilim that uh, is going to impose their will on the end time. I think likely more for through the descendants, but it could be from a recreation or survival basis as well. Right. Yeah. Because the reason why I asked about the White House was um, some of uh, the prophets. That's, I'm talking about there's there's some true prophets that I'm talking about where they've noticed uh, the way some particular uh, people act in the White House and they, yeah. look at, they look at their eyes and they see like kind of like serpent eyes. Do, do, you, yeah. you, do you think that's possible if they have that kind of possession? It's it's possible, um, probably not likely because, again, typically, you know, unless they are of some sort of high level degree of mysticism, um, that would be it would be unlikely. Um, but we can't we can't rule it out. But what I do mm -hmm. know is that take the presidents as an example for the most part, and I haven't done the research on the last one, mm -hmm. um, but typically they have bloodlines that go back to specific royal families. The most common one, certainly up to the time of uh, Bush, uh, they took their bloodlines back to the Plantagenet, which was King John and the Magna Carta as a Plantagenet, but they are an offshoot of the Anjou. And Anjou goes back, in, as its etymology goes back to Anu of the Anunnaki. And so they are one of the, the 13 families, the Anjou. And the Anjou, they have a few different branches of them, and they're all fighting over something called the King of Jerusalem title. Um, and that title comes from the time of the Templars, um, with the crowning in 1118 of Baldwin II. Some accounts as it as Baldwin I, but they're the same family, so it's... It's uh, it's an Anjou family, and it gets crowned with the King of Jerusalem in a small priory in the Rock of Zion, as the history of Freemasonry talks about, which is where the name the Priory of Zion, Zion comes from, the Priory of Sion, because Zion is the Hebrew sort of name, but Sion is also a double entendre in the occult. Uh, in the occult world. But this King of Jerusalem title that they're crowned with is because they are bloodlines of the royal families of the Lorraine region. And you'll recognize that as they intermarried later on with the Habsburgs, the Habsburg-Lorraine family, right? So this King of Jerusalem title is crowned to a pure blood that takes their lineage back to the last survivor, Dagobert of the Merovingian bloodline, and then back into prehistory. As I mentioned earlier, they keep their genealogies. And King Saul is part of the lines that are also scioned or grafted in, in terms of the Anjou and several other Rex Deus or Kings of God uh, families in, in Europe. And King Saul was a Benjamite. And so they have that bloodline grafted in and other Judaic ones. So they say whether or not we believe it or not, it's not important. It's what they do with their belief is, which is important. Um, but in the book of Joshua, at the time of the Exodus, the time of the giant wars, and after the land was taken, Jerusalem was gifted to the Benjamites. So they're crowning themselves with the king of Jerusalem title because they believe they have a bloodline inheritance to the city of Jerusalem where Antichrist is going to be crowned and the king of Jerusalem is going to be the title that they want Antichrist crowned with in the end time at the midpoint of the last seven years. This title has come down through the Anjou, uh, in, through Hungary, into the Lorraine region, over to the Habsburg dynasty, 
the Habsburg Lorraine dynasty and currently rests with the Bourbon family out of uh, Spain, whose father uh, was of the current King Philip was Juan Carlos who received uh, that King of Jerusalem title. And there are a couple of rivals that say they're the legitimate King of Jerusalem's, they're Anjou as well. But they believe that they're going to be crowned with this title. So yeah, we need to understand that this reach is out there and has mm-hmm. full support of the royal families and a lot of the occult organizations that, so that it, they it all organize. Ha- it all has to do with the bloodline. It does. Now listen yeah. to this as, as something that's kind of freaky out of the book of Psalms in terms of the bloodlines. Because and that's why I put so much focus on that Daniel two and, and the Psalms and the genealogies that uh, you know they keep you know like Prince Charles for example he uh, he he's on their on record on it you can Google it and, and get the newspaper report and probably the the uh, the video on it as well he says he he descends back to Vlad the Impaler which mm. Dracula is based on right and Dracula is son of a dragon as it's translated and draconta as it comes out of greek means watcher <laughs> you can't make this stuff up no. and that comes through the hanovers which you know became the kings in the time of just before the american revolution that changed their name to the windsor family because of world war one so understand that these bloodlines they take right back and uh vlad the impaler was this classic tuatha de Danan, this noble celt who had red hair pale skin hazel eyes was educated in the mystical school of Solomon in Vienna, who drank blood, who had an aversion to light. So he was a night sort of person. And he was a very horrible guy. And he has these Nephilim bloodlines. Like the whole allegory of Dracula is based on those Nephilim bloodlines and they're the enemies of Christianity. So here's the here's the passage that uh, is, I think is very, very interesting in Psalms and it won't take long to read. It says, Thou shalt make them as a fiery oven in the time of thine anger, in the time of the Lord's wrath. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Here's where it gets interesting. Verse 10. Their fruit shall thou destroy from the earth, and their seed from amongst the children of men. I mean, if they're not humans, where is that fruit and that seed from? And then verse 11 for they intended evil against thee, they imagined a mischievous device which they are not able to perform or bring about. So there's a seed line there that we need to be aware of that is going to be addressed in the end time. Wow. Gary, man, thank you so much for coming on today. I really do appreciate it. That was so interesting. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. It's just so much information. Can you, uh, again, tell everyone uh, where they can find your information and your book? I mean, is it on Amazon and so forth? It is. And uh, the best way to get a hold of my book or for me, and I talked about a lot of topics today, you know, like Daniel 2. We talked about bloodlines. I have an RH negative one where I talk about that, how that sort of fits into the bloodlines as from the gene of ISIS, which we didn't talk about. I have a document on Putin, I have a document on Xi, I have a document on the sons of God, and I have documents on each of these types of Nephilim, and I, I give those away for free. So if you go to the Genesis 6 Conspiracy, that's the number 6conspiracy.com, you click on contact the author, ask for that 
that document on a subject that I talked about. If I've got a document on that, I will send it to you. It may take me two or three weeks to get back to you, but I will get back to you, I promise you on it. Or if you want to ask me a question, you can ask me a question and I will also get back to you. Um, and also on the website, you can get a generous excerpt of all 98 chapters of my book. And so it's a large book, and if you just go through the uh, table of contents, I think it's going to create some interest. I have a sequel that I will have out later this year for the Genesis 6 Conspiracy. I'm on about chapter 57 right now. It'll be a little bit smaller than the 800 pages on this one, but this is more just about... What I've learned from talking to people is they want more information on what the Bible says from a Christian perspective about giants. So I'm really right. going into that and then how that connects into the end time. They want to know awesome. the connections between prehistory and the end time, which I dig deep into. And on the website, you can get a signed copy from me or you can link over to barnesandnoble.com or you can link over to amazon.com or amazon.ca or the Kindle version from the website and uh, get that copy there. Uh, the book is also available through most online bookstores. If you wanted to support your local bookstore, which I definitely support, um, you they may not have it on the shelf, but they can order it in through Bookmasters out of Pennsylvania who distributes the book for my publisher. And uh, so you can support your local bookstore that way as well. So if you want to get a hold of me on social media, the only social media I'm doing right now is Facebook until I decide where's probably the best place to go. I've shut down all the other ones that I don't want to support, but I need mm -hmm. one open and that's Facebook. So you can get a hold of me on my timeline under Gary Wayne or message me through messenger. Great, man. Thanks Gary so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking your time and what a, what a mission you're doing for God. I really appreciate it. Well, I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I try and praise a lot of the, the conversations I have, not only for Christians. So I'm trying yeah. to take everything's back biblically, right? Sure. But I'm also trying to encourage people who aren't Christians to maybe have a closer look at what's written in the Bible and, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe from an open mind, because my approach with the Bible is not necessarily um, what the churches teach, because I'm a contrarian. I like to verify everything myself. And so to me, it's an absolute, well, I call it a mystery. To me, it's really not a mystery. But if you notice churches, most churches, they do not teach prehistory and they do not teach prophecy. Yeah. And I think they're doing their followers a significant disservice and not preparing yes. for the Christians for what I think is coming. Yes, absolutely. That's, yeah, that's another topic right there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, man. God bless you. And uh, stay on the line. Don't hang up. I want to talk to you. Take care, okay?